you'd like to go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 8, we're going to be reading from and preaching from John chapter 8, and we're going to get to verses 12 through 30. But before we read the passage today and, and start in on the sermon, we need to deal with John 7.53 through 8.11. If you have an ESV or maybe some other translation, you're going to see that that portion of Scripture is in brackets. And there's usually some sort of message that says the earliest manuscripts do not have 7.53 through 8.11. So that tells us that this portion of, of, of this, this passage was not included in the original autograph and the original manuscripts of the Gospel of John. In other words, when John wrote this Gospel, this section was not part of it. And we know that because sometimes in different manuscripts, this, these verses are inserted here. Uh, sometimes they're inserted in other places in John. Sometimes they're inserted in the Gospel of Luke. As a result, some, some preach this authoritatively. Some, some double down and say, no, we can absolutely agree that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're going to preach from it, just like we preach from any other section of the Bible. Others refuse to preach from it or even read from this, this portion in public worship and uh, they don't discuss it at all. I think the best way to approach this is to acknowledge that although our modern translations of the Bible have included this section, they also bracket it off with that, um, with that disclaimer about not being in the original manuscripts. So we need to acknowledge that this, this is not part of what John originally wrote, but it does seem like something that really happened. This seemed like an actual event that the early church recognized was real, and although it wasn't in the original Gospel of John, they included it because they thought it was important to retain. So what do we do with it? Well, I'm convinced not to preach on it. I'm convinced that because it's not inspired scripture, then we should not be preaching from it. The only thing that should be proclaimed authoritatively from the pulpit of Christ's church is inspired scripture. And we certainly don't want to build any doctrine or uh, confessional statements on this passage. But we can affirm what it teaches insofar as it is in agreement with the rest of Scripture. So that said, I'm going to read through it. And then I'm going to take just a couple of, of brief minutes to make some observations. So here's this, this section 853, uh, really uh, 753 through 811. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up 
and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. A couple of observations. Number one, we want to say this. Jesus, by his actions, is not nullifying the seventh commandment. Uh, we know from the rest of Scripture that Jesus affirmed the seventh commandment. In fact, he even clarifies um, and strengthens the seventh commandment by saying even impure thoughts, looking lustfully, you don't have to actually physically commit adultery to break the seventh commandment. Simply thinking about it is breaking the commandment. So he's not nullifying the seventh commandment. Uh, number two, he's not excusing sexual immorality. Nowhere does Jesus say that the woman was without sin or that she hadn't sinned, or that her sin was no big deal. And he also does not say that she doesn't deserve to be sentenced and condemned. Uh, number three, refusing to condemn someone is not the same thing as granting approval. So Jesus said, I refuse to I'm, I'm not going to condemn you. And he did this for a couple of reasons. First of all, if we remember from the rest of Scripture, Jesus did not come to... Uh, set up a booth in the temple so he can settle disputes on the street, like some kind of um, arbiter or some kind of ad hoc judge that, that, was, that was acting independently without witnesses. Secondly, he knew the, woman, it, it, the woman's accusers were not interested in the purity of the law or seeing justice administered. They were there to trap him. Um, the whole thing seems to have been orchestrated by his enemies. I mean, we look, look at verse 6. It says, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So he was aware of that and he wasn't going to respond um, and walk into their trap. And then finally, number four, uh, Jesus dismissed her by saying that he was not going to act as a, a judge and condemn her without witnesses, which was required by the law. And then he said, go and sin no more. He did not say, go, your sins are forgiven. He, he did not say uh, anything about forgiveness. In fact, uh, he didn't say, uh, it's okay, uh, those men were mean to you, you're clearly the victim, so I'm on your side. Nothing like that. And that's occasionally how, unfortunately, it gets preached. What he was saying to her was, I'm not going to act as a judge in the street without any witnesses so my enemies can trap me. But as for you, Stop sinning. Stop walking in, in unrepentant sin. And we're not told if she did or not. We don't know how this turned out. This is all we have, and, and so we don't know how it ends. So far from excusing sin or giving the woman pass or nullifying the seventh commandment, Jesus lays down the same requirement he lays down for everyone. Repent and believe. And that's the, the takeaway from that section. So we... We wanted to deal with that first, and why don't we now go ahead and pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, and, and we can get started. Uh, Father, as we approach your word this morning, we, we come to you in faith. We come to you believing. Um, we come to you asking for your power to open our eyes to see and understand this passage, its true meaning, and also how to apply it to our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think all of us at some point have received a certain type of letter in the mail. And upon receiving it, we, we open it. 
and we, we read that it's from something like our insurance company or maybe one of our utility providers or maybe our, our mortgage lender. And so we read through the, the letter and they're writing to inform us of some kind of internal change or, or some, something that's, that's happened within the company. Uh, maybe the insurance company's been bought out, now they're doing business under a different name. Or maybe your, your mortgage lender has, has sold your loan to another bank. What, whatever it happens to be, there's some sort of change that they're giving you information about. But then near the end of the letter, you read these words. No action is required on your part. Have you ever gotten one of those letters? We get them all the time. They, they've, they've informed you of something that's happened, but then they want to assure you nothing's going to change. They say, oh, you don't have to do anything on your part. Your insurance is going to remain uninterrupted. You can still make your house payments the way you've always made them. Nothing's different for you. If you don't take any action, things will remain exactly the same. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells his listeners the same thing. First, he informs them of who he is and what kind of response is necessary for salvation. But then he goes on to tell them, if they don't want to be saved, if they want to die in their sins, then no action is required on their part. They simply have to do nothing. He tells them, if you don't take any action, things will remain the same, and you'll die in your sins. What is true in the first century is still true today. Each one of us must turn in faith to Jesus Christ. However, if we want to die in our sins, no action is required. And before we finish today, we want to clarify what Jesus means. When he lays down the requirement for salvation, it's all in verse 12. When, we, when Jesus says, whoever follows me... We want to be sure we understand what he means by that. Because if everything hinges on that, and it does, if, if the difference between dying in our sins and dying forgiven hinges on whoever follows me, we want to be sure we clearly understand what Jesus means. We don't want to assume that we know what he means. We don't want to fill in the blanks with, with our own thoughts. We want to know what Jesus means by whoever follows me. So this is a three-point sermon. I'll, I'll give you the points right now. Number one, Jesus is the promised Messiah and source of spiritual light. Number two, all who fail to follow Jesus will die in their sin. And number three, following Jesus is required for salvation. So let's read the passage. This is starting at verse 12 through verse 30. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. 
They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So point one is Jesus is the promised Messiah and the source of spiritual light. And our passage begins in verse 12 with Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus declares, this is one of his I am statements in the book of John. I am the light of the world. And in making that statement, he is communicating two things. Number one, he is the promised Messiah. If we turn back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 42, it says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. So yes, Jesus is given as a covenant for the people. Jesus represents the people of God uh, and fulfills all covenant obligations. Praise God that Jesus is there to fulfill the law on our behalf. But the second part, a light for the nations to open their eyes, spiritual eyes. Jesus is the spiritual light that allows people to spiritually see. Isaiah 49.6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we see in these two passages, these two verses from Isaiah, a link between light and salvation, between light and Savior, between light and the Messiah. So that's been established already, and anyone in, in the first century uh, any, any well-read uh, Jew for sure, anyone familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, would have known that. They, they would have known that the Messiah, the Savior, was linked with light. The Messiah would be light, and then conversely, the light was the Messiah. That was expected. In fact, we see that in Simeon's uh, confession in Luke 2.32. Remember, Simeon was this elderly man that had been promised that he would see the Christ before he died. And he said in Luke 2.32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So they understood that. Even the common 
person on the street understood light equals Messiah. So when Jesus declares, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am the promised Messiah. I'm the one that the Old Testament scriptures point forward to. I'm the one you've been waiting for. That's me. I am the Messiah. The second thing that he communicates when he says, I am the light of the world, is that he is the source of spiritual light. When I was a child, our family went on a vacation. We went to New Mexico and we went to Carlsbad Caverns. This is an extensive network, a cave system. I believe it's a national park. And we went down deep into the cave, uh, several, uh, probably a quarter mile, half mile, several feet of elevation down into the cave into one of these big cavernous places. And the guide said, okay, we're going to do something now. Everybody stand together as a, as a family unit. We're going to turn the lights off. And we're going to show you how dark it is without any artificial light. And there was a countdown, three, two, one. And then someone else in control of the lights somewhere turned off the lights. And I distinctly remember immediately being plunged into the darkest, blackest night that I could possibly imagine. I mean, this was before cell phones, before cameras with backlit screens. I mean, there was no light. I, I strained my eyes trying to see something. I held my hand up to see if I could see anything. Nothing. No shadows, no variation, nothing. There was no light. There was no sun, there were no moon, no stars. It was the blackest black I've ever seen in my life. And the point is this, without light, it is impossible to see. Jesus is the spiritual light. Without Jesus, the light of the world, it is impossible to see truth. It is impossible to see spiritual truth. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He alone spiritually illuminates our mind, our soul, our life. And without Christ, we cannot see God. We cannot see truth. We cannot rightly understand the world around us. Without Jesus Christ, we are in the spiritual cave with the lights turned off. We can't even see our hand in front of our face, spiritually. And if Jesus is the light of the world, then what does that imply? It means the world is dark. The world is in darkness. Those outside of Christ are in spiritual darkness, naturally in the dark. We need light to see spiritual truth. Jesus says, without Christ, people walk in darkness. All other world religions, all other belief systems, all other deeply held religious beliefs, all other spiritual teachings are false lights. They do not provide any spiritual light to the truth. They can only lead people in continued darkness. So here's Jesus' offer. He says, whoever follows me, the whoever means anyone, you, me, the person we work with, somebody in Iceland, somebody in Australia, it doesn't matter. Whoever, anyone, whoever follows me, and we're going to see later, follows me and believes in me are essentially the same. 
There are some nuanced differences. We're not going to get into them right now, but for a broad salvation sense, following Jesus and believing in Jesus are somewhat synonymous. So he's saying, that person, whoever follows me or believes in me, will not walk in darkness. They will no longer continue to live a spiritually dark life. They will no longer be in the cave with the lights off, cut off from God. But, Jesus says, will have the light of life. The one who follows Jesus will have spiritual light, spiritual life. They will be brought to spiritual life by Jesus. They will have their spiritual eyes opened by Jesus. They will have their sins forgiven by Jesus. They will be given eternal life from Jesus because Jesus is the light of the world. So point number one is this. Jesus is the promised Messiah and he is the source of spiritual light to a darkened world. And the condition or the action point, he says, is for whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness but receive the light of life. So that's, that's point number one. If we look at verse 13, this, this whole section, 13 through 20, is Jesus interacting with skeptical and hostile Jewish leaders. The Pharisees respond to this, this I am statement by saying, you're bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. So this is, this is them saying to Jesus, hey, uh, anybody can just come out and make fantastical claims about who they are. Do you have anybody else backing you up? Do you have anybody else saying the same thing? Is anybody out there going to agree with you? And, and to some extent we get this, right? I mean, if, even in a modern court, um, if the defendant comes out and says to the judge, I'm innocent, I didn't do it. The judge doesn't say, oh, okay, well, you're free to go then. No, we, don't, we need a little bit more than just your own testimony. We need something else. And so Jesus addresses that. In 14 through 18, we see him addressing his testimony. Verse 16 is the parenthetical statement about judging, and then the 17, 18, back to his testimony. So 14 uh, through 18, Jesus responds to this charge of being his own independent witness, and he says, yes, but I'm not just some guy. That's the difference. I'm not some prophet or some other teacher of the law that you're used to seeing and hearing. That's not me. I'm, just, I'm not just some ordinary person because of who I am, because of where I'm going, where I came from. My testimony is true on its own. Because I am fully God, I don't need anyone else to bear witness about me. God's witness, God's word is self-authenticating because of by virtue of being the word of God. There is no higher authority. Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. He's saying you judge by worldly standards. You judge by how things appear to you. This sounds very familiar to uh, chapter 7 at the end where he said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's saying you, you judge according to how things look to you. Then he says, I judge no one. This, this statement, I judge no one, is a very popular statement by Jesus right now, as you can well imagine. I judge no one. And so some, some pull those four words out of context, and then they fill it in and give it the meaning they want to. So uh, you may have heard this. Um, they conclude that Jesus is, is all love and, and no judgment. So 
in the end, it really doesn't matter if you're a sinner or not, or if you believe in him or not. Um, he just wants to love on you, and he's not going to condemn you because that's not what he does. Well, that's an incorrect interpretation of that passage. It's lifting it out of context. We know from chapter 5, uh, we read, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And John 5, 27, And he, meaning God the Father, has given him, meaning Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So yes, Jesus is going to judge. Uh, Jesus is the appointed judge. We'll all stand before Jesus. Uh, Jesus is all about judging, but not at this point in his incarnate ministry. That's what he's saying here. Jesus did not become incarnate, like I said a moment earlier, to to set up a booth and just kind of settle disputes or or to, to bring judgment down on people at that time. He came to proclaim the gospel and he came to complete the work that the Father had given him. He came to save. And that's what we read in, in John three seventeen, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this is a matter of timing. It's not that Jesus doesn't judge or will never judge. It's that he's not judging right now. And then here's that parenthetical statement I told you about. Verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. He's, saying, he's telling them, even if I were to judge right now, it, my judgment would be just as accurate, just as true, just as trustworthy as my own testimony because of that inseparable connection between the Father and the Son. Verses 17 and 18, uh, not only is Jesus' independent witness trustworthy, but he adds, um, I'm not my only witness. God the Father also bears witness to who I am. And then their question, where is your father? This is not an innocent question. They're not genuinely asking where his father is. We can read this with scorn in their voice. They're mocking him. Where is your father? And he points again to the inseparable connection. You neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. This he said to the Pharisees, the most elite and spiritual people in all of Jerusalem. He said, you don't know God. Why? Because you're in spiritual darkness. You're in the cave with the lights off. Verse 20, John gives us a comment about where Jesus was speaking. He says, in the treasury, as he taught in the temples. This is probably to highlight the open nature of Jesus' teaching. It was public. Jesus didn't teach in secret. He didn't meet in enclosed rooms in the the back of a hotel or something like that. Jesus taught in the temple in Jerusalem. It doesn't get much more public than that. He he was openly speaking and and saying things so people could listen, examine, and test. But no one laid a hand on him. Now remember, they had a capture and kill order out on Jesus at this point. They were actively seeking to arrest him and end his life. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. For contrast, we can look at verse twenty or Luke 22 when it was time for him to go to the cross. And that says, uh, this is Jesus saying, Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So we're reminded here, Jesus was divinely protected until the Father's timeline 
was ready for him to go to the cross. Until that, nobody could touch him. All who fail to follow Jesus will die in their sins. This is point number two, verses 21 through 24. Uh, Jesus, again, to the Jewish leader, says, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. For where I'm going, you cannot come. They're confused. Is he going to kill himself? They're not sure. And then he says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So Jesus is pointing out a division, a chasm, a gulf between Christ and the world, between those who are in Christ, who who have faith in God through Christ, and everybody else. And he's telling these Jewish leaders, here's this division, you're on the wrong side of it. You're over on this side. And he's telling them with the statement, I am the light of the world, and all this other teaching, I'm the division. You, Jewish leaders, have to come to me, or else you will die in your sin. He repeats it. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It doesn't get much clearer than that. He's saying, look, there's a spiritual division. All people are in one of two groups. I'm the division, and if you don't come to me, you will die in your sin. Here's here's that paragraph of the letter. He's made the statement. He's informed them. He is the light of the world. And then here's that paragraph in the letter that says, no action is required in your part. If you want to continue in your sin, just don't do anything, and you will continue to walk in darkness. But if you want your sins forgiven, you have to come to me. If you take no action, you die in your sins. To die in your sins is to die unforgiven. To die unforgiven is to face the final judgment unforgiven. To to face the final judgment unforgiven means you're going to be judged for your sin and sentenced and assigned an eternal place in hell. So Jesus is telling these Jewish leaders, no action is required on your part. If you want to remain as you are and die in your sin and go to hell, then continue. Don't believe in me. Don't follow me. Just continue to to live however you want and do whatever else you want to do because nothing else matters. And look at their response. Who are you? A loose modern paraphrase would be, who do you think you are? And he answers, I've been consistent from the beginning. I've already told you, nothing's changed. I have much more I could say. I have much more to judge about you. But for now, I'm going to say that I'm from the Father and I've been proclaiming his message to you and to the world. And then he says, when you have lifted the Son of Man, when you've lifted up, the Son of Man, meaning crucifixion, then you will know that I am He. Jesus is saying, when it comes to my crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension, that that whole package, then you will know that everything I'm saying is the real deal. The resurrection was the ultimate validating proof of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, to be the one prophesied 
by the, by the entire Old Testament scriptures. And as a result of the cross, some of the Jews would believe, but others, the majority, would not. And we can read about both of those responses in the book of Acts. It plays out exactly like he said it would. He finishes this discourse with another statement about the unity of the Father and the Son and how the Son always pleases the Father. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He always did exactly what the Father uh, had asked him to do. And then finally in verse 30, our passage closes with this. It says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed. And at first we want to say, all right, yeah. But then we say, well, hold on a second before we get too excited. We've, we've seen this report before from John. We've seen him report that people were believing in Jesus and we're going to see it again. But we also know from John that when we read that, many people believed or people believed in Jesus, it doesn't always mean saving faith. I remember back to John chapter 2, it says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And as we're going to see, uh, Lord willing, next week, their faith is not genuine. This is not real belief. It says they believed in him, but by the end of the chapter, they're trying to kill him. So this, this isn't real. No action required. Let's summarize this passage. Jesus declared that he was the promised Messiah and the source of spiritual light and that all who believed in him would receive spiritual light and life. Jesus emphasized the unity and inseparable connection between the Father and himself. And he warned his listeners that if they failed to believe in him, they would die in their sins. All the while, the Jewish leaders remained skeptical and hostile while some arrived at a false and temporary belief. This was a three-point sermon. Number one, Jesus is the promised Messiah and source of light. We covered that. Number two, without Jesus, all die in their sins. We hit that as well. Number three, following Jesus is required for salvation. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time in application is on this last point. If following Jesus is required for salvation, and it is, then we want to make sure we get this one right. We want to make sure that we understand what whoever follows me means. Uh, the, the two key verses in this passage are 12 and 24. If we look at both of those side by side, we can see this. The first one says, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And John 8, 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So following Jesus means believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means following Jesus. And that's why he uses them interchangeably in these two verses. But we also know that it's possible to believe and have that belief be a artificial or surface, or temporary, false belief because of this passage and and this chapter and others. We don't want that. We don't want false belief. We want genuine belief. We want to be real followers of Jesus. So the Bible teaches this. Genuine followers of Jesus are disciples of Jesus. 
genuine belief results in lifelong discipleship. We cannot break those apart. So it's interesting, in this passage, Jesus teaches, it's very clear, if you want to remain in your sins, no action is required. You don't have to do anything. However, the same is not true if they don't want to remain in their sins. We have to believe in Jesus, which means we have to take action. We actually have to engage in authentic, lifelong discipleship. Now, before somebody pulls correct reform doctrine on me and calls me out, I'm not saying that we're contributing to our salvation. Okay? We are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. What I'm saying is genuine belief will result in the believer taking action and that action being lifelong discipleship. That's what Jesus is saying. So, in order for us to get a picture of what discipleship looks like, we don't want to fill in the blanks on our own. We don't want to assume anything. We don't want to rely on something we heard or something we read on the internet. Let's go right to the source. Here are a collection of, of teachings from Jesus on discipleship. We'll look at them one at a time and be listening for themes and repetition. Luke 14, 26-33 If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's Luke 14. Matthew 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then finally John 12. Whoever loves his life will loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now you should have heard some repetition in there. There's quite a bit. There's quite a bit of overlap. They're all saying essentially the same thing. They're all defining what discipleship looks like, and there are three elements to this action that are required of genuine believers. Number one, dying to self. Dying to self. That language, whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever hates his life, let him deny himself. That, that's all dying to self language. It was in all the descriptors. Now this doesn't mean that we have to um, deny ourselves and take on an ascetic lifestyle that we just kind of remove ourselves from any, any kind of uh, pleasure or any, any type of... Uh, a creative outlet or we have to just kind of you know beat ourselves up and, and look downcast all the time and, and and never enjoy ourselves that's not what it's talking about this dying to self language means we die to our own agenda for life it means we take the keys to our life and we toss them to Jesus and we don't ask for them back it means we don't call the shots anymore. It means we don't run the show anymore. 
we don't decide what's right or what's not right for, for our life anymore. We don't decide what's right or wrong in, in the world around us. We allow God's word to shape that, to inform it, and, and to teach us. It means we freely acknowledge that the life we live, our life, is not our life anymore. Uh, Paul summarizes this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's dying to self. Jesus says that's a requirement. That's, that's a non-negotiable. That's part of what it means to follow and be a disciple. So number one, dying to self. Number two, obeying Christ at any cost. The language where we read, where it said, whoever does not bear his own cross, whoever does not take his own cross, take up his cross. We saw that repeated. This is talking about obeying Christ at any cost. The cross in the first century, when, when people heard the word the cross, they thought execution. I think we're all aware of this. It would be like lethal injection or firing squad or hanging or something like that today, the electric chair. I mean, when you mentioned cross or crucifixion, there, there was an immediate kind of recoil from that word, like, oh, oh, mm, mm. Take up your cross. Jesus obeyed the Father even when it meant that that obedience led to the cross. Jesus embraced God's will for him, God the Father's assignment even when it meant going to the cross, not only dying an excruciatory excruciary, uh, death uh, of pain, but taking the wrath of God, the horror of taking the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Jesus knew that, and yet he obeyed. He took up his cross in obedience. So Jesus calls his disciples to obey God's word, no matter what the cross, no matter where that obedience leads them. And I think there's another dimension to this uh, taking up your cross, obeying Christ at any cost, because the cross was also a one-way trip. When, when someone was executed, they were literally ordered to take the cross beam. The cross was made of two pieces of wood traditionally, and they could be an X, but it was also often like the traditional vertical cross. And they took that cross beam, they took it on themselves, and they had to carry that to the cross. And they had to walk by the public, anyone who wanted to watch. And as the, the people watched the condemned person walk by with their cross beam, their first thought was probably, better you than me, I'm, I'm glad that's not me. But they also would have very acutely been aware of they're not coming back. They're going to the cross. They're not coming back to the cross. Likewise, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, it's for life. I think that's communicated in this cross language. It's saying, this is a one-way trip. You commit to Jesus Christ in discipleship, there's no coming back. You don't turn around. You go all the way and you don't come back. It's a one-way trip. 
So number one, dying to self. Number two, obeying Christ at any cost. And the third element that I, I think we all heard in that those passages, unqualified allegiance. When we heard the language about whoever loves his father and mother more than me, uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, first, he's not teaching hate. Let's not take it out of context. He's teaching unqualified allegiance. If we think family's important, and I hope believers think family's important, it is. Multiply that by a hundred or maybe a thousand for, for the, the culture in the first century, the Jewish culture. Family is important to us. It was really important to them. It was everything. It was everything. And Jesus says, I come before that. Whatever honor, and that's one of the commandments. It's the fifth commandment. Whoever, whatever honor you give to the, your mother and father, you give me more honor. Whatever obedience you give to your mother or your father, you give me more obedience. I want your unqualified allegiance. Ultimately, you answer to me. Jesus comes first before your husband, before your wife, before your parents, before your children, before your boss or supervisor at work, before your job, whatever they tell you to do, before them, before the civil magistrates, before the government, any source of authority you can imagine, Jesus says, I've come before that. Jesus comes first. So this is what Jesus says authentic discipleship looks like. Dying to self, obeying Christ at any cost, and unqualified allegiance. Following Jesus with lifelong, authentic discipleship. That's what he means when he says, whoever follows me, whoever believes in me. This is what's expected. This is the action point that true believers will demonstrate. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a a pastor in, in Germany during World War II, and he was one of the few that refused to go along with the Nazis. He refused to go along with their, their whole teaching and, and ideology. and um, So he remained outside of, of that whole mess. He refused, and, and as a result, he was captured, he was imprisoned, and ultimately he was executed because he stood for Christ alone. So when somebody like that speaks, we should probably listen. And he said this, he said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. He's tying those two things together. He's saying, look, you cannot be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and not be a disciple. If you want to make that claim, if you want want to profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you've got to back it up. You've got to have what Jesus says is lifelong, active, authentic discipleship. So the question this morning is this, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ as defined by Christ? Have you died to yourself? Are you continuing to die to yourself? What area or areas of your life do you need to relinquish control of and hand over to Jesus Christ? 
What steps are you currently taking to actively obey Jesus Christ and his word? And as you live out your, your life and as you, as you are, are being a Christian, are you, are you taking steps? Is, is there a time in your mind where you're proactively, intentionally reviewing your life with the goal of bringing it under the authority of Christ's word? Is that a regular part? Is that a regular discipline of your life? Is there anything in your life that you would not part with or would even hesitate to part with if it hindered your walk with Christ? Is there something that that would be hard to let go of or is hard to let go of? Does Jesus have your undivided allegiance? Or is there someone or something that you just can never say no to? Let me close with uh, addressing unbelievers and believers today, both. First of all, if there's anyone here this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I'd like you to take John 8, and I want you to view it as a letter from God to you. And in this letter, God gives you a message. He's giving you notice. And he's saying, Jesus is the light of of the world. Forgiveness of your sins can be found through faith in Christ. And God wants you to know that if you believe in him and you respond in faith and in lifelong discipleship, you'll no longer walk in darkness. You'll no longer be in the spiritual cave with the lights off. God will give you light. He will give you life. He will forgive your sin. But in one of these paragraphs of the letter, God tells you this. If you want to die in your sins, no further action is required on your part. You can leave here today. You can go back to your life and continue to live it in whatever way seems right to you without any interruption. Take action today. If you're not in Christ, take action today. Believe upon Jesus Christ. You will have your sins forgiven. Believe in him. Join yourself to his body, a local faithful body of believers, and never look back. For believers, and I think it's most of us here today, followers of Jesus are required to maintain authentic, lifelong discipleship. Discipleship is not something we can learn from the world. It's not something that we can define on our own terms. It's not up to us to to um, draw our own lines or set our own parameters on how far Jesus is allowed to encroach onto our life. And discipleship is not even something that we can necessarily always look around. Uh, It's not something that we can look around other believers and say, well, I guess I only have to do that much because that's all they're doing. No, instead, we've got to look at what Jesus calls us to. And this is what scripture says. Dying to self, obedience at any cost, and unqualified allegiance. Amen. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Lord. And we thank you that you have saved us, that you've extended grace to us, And that you have also loved us enough to tell us 
the kind of response that characterizes genuine believers. Father, we want authentic discipleship. We strive for it. Help us to look upon these words from Jesus with fresh eyes and examine our life with an honest look and then be willing and able to to make adjustments as needed. Father, we want to serve you with every fiber of our being. And so we ask you to help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.